Stoker Festival in Dublin, Ireland, this is Fangs. Over the series, we've been looking at all the weird and wonderful adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Emphasis on the weird. And we've even managed to avoid getting bitten. Too late. My blood now flows through your veins. Okay, chill out, Lugosi, because on today's episode, we are going beyond Dracula to look at some works of vampire fiction to see just how our fanged friends have been getting on in more recent literature. Later, we'll be chatting with author and film critic Kim Newman about his alternative history series Anno Dracula, and we'll be talking with children's author and illustrator Una Woods about her new book that asks, Have You Seen the Dublin Vampire? But first, we're going to look at the literary origins of the HBO series True Blood, all about Suki Stackhouse, a telepathic waitress, and her encounters with vampires. Guess what happened tonight? You got a date? Um, no. A vampire came into the bar. You know how many people are having sex with vampires these days? You would be surprised people you know. Sometimes those people disappear. Apparently, there's this vampire bar in Treefort. Fantasia. Fantasia? True Blood ran for seven seasons, but before it made it to the small screen, Suki Stackhouse was having adventures in the pages of Charlene Harris's Southern Vampire Mysteries series of books. I'm Charlene Harris. I'm a writer. That's what I do. I like to bake. I have grandchildren. I'm a churchgoer. I have rescue dogs. That sums it up. That it does. Next year, 2021, will mark Charlene's 40th year as a published author. 40 years? So old. (laughs) I started off writing conventional mysteries. That was what I was reading. And I knew that was within, that was in my wheelhouse. I could do that. So my first few books were conventional mysteries, two standalones, then a series about a librarian, and then a series about a rape survivor. And I just kept, kept, my career just really wasn't, wasn't really going anywhere. And I thought, you know, I just want to let loose and write something that is just kind of wild and crazy and has everything but the kitchen sink in it. So I started thinking about a a woman who was dating a vampire. And I thought, well, why would anybody do something that stupid? Because that would obviously shorten your life quite a bit. And so I had to come up with a reason for her to do that. And then the whole world kind of evolved from that. And it took two years for my agent to, to sell the book. Turned down over and over and over. Up until this point, Charlene had written entirely conventional mystery books. The supernatural did not raise its undead head. She was taking a risk veering into vampires. And then there were like strict taboos against what you could put in conventional mysteries. And that included any element of the supernatural. That was called woo-woo. And if you wrote woo-woo, you know, you got no respect. But I thought, you know what? The hell. 
why not write a book with everything in it? Everything. I just had the best time doing it. The best time. And it turned out to be a, you know, it sold a lot. Writing a fresh take on vampires when Bram Stoker's Dracula had been the definitive vampire novel for nearly a century wasn't an easy task. Charlene says the journey was eased somewhat by another notable author. I think Anne Rice opened the door for all of us when she wrote Interview with the Vampire, which is absolutely the most fabulous book because it brought vampires into this era and it assumed that a human being would talk to a vampire and get the truth from them. And that was an amazing thing. And then Laurel K. Hamilton brought vampires into the modern world in a very immediate way. And I thought, this has got to be a good thing. I have got to be able to do this in a meaningful way to express some ideas I had about society. And I, I did. I took the northern part of Louisiana because Anne Rice had the southern part. And I figured she wouldn't mind, and she didn't. She's such a sweetie. And I, I talked about vampires being part of our everyday life and how different people would deal with that. And it, it was just not only a lot of food for thought for me, but it was also a lot of fun. It changed my nature, and it, of course, it changed my bank account, too. Uh, and it changed my, my profile quite a bit. So it was, it was good all the way around. Charlene says, even though vampires have been rewritten and reimagined, that Dracula is still the source. It's really an interesting book to reread and see the various aspects he gave Dracula then that we tend to shove back now, uh, like Dracula could daywalk. Dracula could turn into all kinds of things. He had brides that hung around the castle and did creepy stuff. Dracula was really a rich character then and just haunted and terrified people. Going from writing mysteries set in the real world to writing of one with a population of bloodsuckers made the writing itself freer for Charlene. It does. Uh, A lot of times... I, though I didn't realize it until I changed my way of writing, a lot of times I would think of something, I'd think, no, that's too bad. I can't do that to my character. Or, oh, no, that's too awful. And then I thought, you know, I can do anything I want to, and it's terrible what I put that poor gal through. Sometimes I just thought, I came to a particular passage, and I thought, I just can't do that to her. I just can't. And then I thought, oh, what the hell? Yeah, I can do it. (laughs) And she was such a resilient and fun character to be with. She bounced back every time. I had to remember all the time that they would not think like we do. Their longevity, the fact that they came from a different, completely different society. They were the product of that society, no matter how many years they lived. The fact that they would have to lose a lot of moral scruples and a lot of whatever religion they had ever adhered to 
in the course of their long, long life, I had to keep reminding myself of that when I was writing them. They would not react like we do ever. And if they did, it was an act. And do you have to leave some of Bram Stoker's rules of vampires aside? You have to. You have to establish your own world and its own rules, and you have to not break them. You can't just say, well, this very one time. Uh, so I read, reread Dracula, and I evaluated all the rules under which Dracula had to operate. Uh, he couldn't cross running water. Well, that's, you know, that just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It's like a failsafe. If I get on the other side of this stream, he can't get me. And I thought that just doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I just discarded that one. Sookie Stackhouse was a big hit, and it wasn't long before production companies began sniffing around to option it into a TV show. But what is the criteria that an author judges a production company by? How do you choose which one to hold your baby? Okay, I have two answers for that. One is a, a quick and glib one. But truthfully, my agent made me talk to everyone who was interested in optioning the books on the phone. And it was excruciatingly difficult for me because, you know, what the hell did I know? I didn't know anything about optioning and, and who the, well, of course, I knew who Alan Ball was. So that made it pretty easy. Alan Ball is a director, producer, and screenwriter. He was the man behind films like American Beauty and TV series like Six Feet Under. If it hadn't been that clear cut, it had been optioned before by someone who never succeeded in getting the money together to make the series into a movie, which was what he wanted to do. When his option lapsed, he wanted to re-up it, and there were two other people who wanted it, two other entities, rather, one group, and then Alan Ball. When I heard Alan Ball, I thought, oh, the, the Alan Ball? <laughs> so here I am talking to him on the phone from my office then in Arkansas, and I'm just going, this is like the most out-of-body experience I've ever had in my life. And I had to get over that because when you deal with people in Hollywood, be they actors or set designers or directors or writers, you have to get over that because they are people like anybody else with a particular talent that you don't have and you have a talent they don't have. So you have to kind of get over being terrified of them. At least I did. Sookie Stackhouse was on her way to the small screen. When you came in, the air went out And every shadow filled up with doubt I don't know who you think you are, but before the night is through I want to do bad things with you the show drew attention to the books. That was what I wanted. I have really very little effect over how the show turns out or any of my television series have turned out. But what I want is that, that frame that says from the books by Charlene Harris. And then people go, oh my God, they're books. I'll go buy them. And then you go, yes, please. 
You can find out about all of Charlene's wonderful books at charleneharris.com. Hi, I'm Kim Newman. I'm a novelist and critic. And relevant to the Bram Stoker Festival is that I have a lifelong involvement with Dracula in all his forms and manifestations. That's right. Kim Newman is a vampire. No, get his name. Sorry, what? Oh, he's a vampire author. That makes more sense. Extending to having written a series of novels, starting with a book called Anno Dracula, which essentially spin off from Stoker's text. Dracula has been a feature of Kim's life ever since he was... Okay, here's the thing. Because these days everything is listed online, I can actually give you a date. It's nearly 50 years ago. It's November the 7th, 1970, was when Westwood Television, the the, uh, ITV independent region where I lived, screened the Bela Lugosi 1931 Dracula late at night. She will live through the centuries to come. As I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. And I was allowed up to watch it. I was 11 years old. And watching that literally changed my life to the extent that I became one of those kids who loved monsters and was obsessed with monster movies. But I I pretty quickly thereafter moved to reading the books. I even started like writing my own stories and stuff when I was in my early teens. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, that's my lifelong involvement with Dracula. I have to say, of course, Although it was the Lugosi film that was the... I realised now I had seen versions of Dracula before. Dracula appeared on an episode of Doctor Who in the 60s. Good evening. Good evening. Who are you? I am Count Dracula. And I'd seen plenty of like comedy sketches of people with fangs and cloaks or whatever, all of which sort of depict a kind of joke Dracula, which the character periodically sort of, even now, if you go online, you find loads and loads of cartoon versions of Dracula. And you know, uh, you know Dracula is a tack bugs bunny and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but periodically the character renews and goes back to being scary Dracula again. And we do keep going back to frightening Dracula. It's almost like Batman. Yeah, I mean, Batman and Sherlock Holmes and Hamlet, the Three Musketeers, they're, they're, all these characters keep being done over and over and over again. And you think at some point we'll run out of ideas. Well, obviously you don't. It, we're still mounting multiple productions of Hamlet every year or Macbeth. And no two are exactly alike. They all come up with something di- different. And those are like absolutely concrete texts. I mean, they, they, they're not really amenable to change, although there have been weird adaptations of both of those. Whereas Dracula has spun out so many widely variant and different interpretations and different adaptations in all kinds of media. It seems to me that Maybe the the original novel was open source in a way that some literary classics aren't. 
That feeling of open source has led to Dracula being remixed and reworked many times over, including by Kim himself in the form of a series of books called Anno Dracula. The series depicts an alternative history in which the heroes of Bram Stoker's Dracula fail to thwart Count Dracula's conquest of Britain, resulting in a world where vampires are common and increasingly dominant in society. It's one of those things that I had knocking around for a, a long time. Immediately what prompted me to, to do it was a friend of mine, Stephen Jones, was editing a big anthology of vampire stories and he asked for something from me. And it's like, I mean, he's a mate, and so I, I wanted to come up with something. But there is a sort of, you know, when you try and enter a field where there's lots and lots of competition, where everybody has written a vampire story, you sort of think, does this really need to get done? But then he mentioned that he didn't have a Dracula story. And I had this Dracula idea that had been knocking around for 10 years. It started as a footnote to an essay I wrote at university, which is the idea of, Stoker's novel as an invasion narrative, like War of the Worlds or the Battle of Dorking or When William Came or various Nazis won the war stories. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, I could do that. I could, I could envision a world in which Dracula won and wasn't defeated by Dr. Van Helsing and took over Britain where, you know, when he moved here in the late 19th century. And that instantly just struck me as being kind of a, a, an interesting idea to explore. But it took me 10 years to come up with a story to go with the universe. And in the subsequent nearly 30 years, I've come up with several other stories. I mean, not, it's not a, a series in the way that Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones is a series. It's not one long story that's cut up. Uh, it is a, it's more like a, a, a world that I can visit and tell different stories within every once in a while. One of the reasons why there are so many vampire stories, beyond the fact that yeah, vampires are kind of cool and, and fun and as monsters go, they're dramatically interesting, is that the, the metaphor works in so many different ways. Vampires have, you know, vampire stories have many meanings, and that means that every every era has its own little versions of vampires, applications and things you can tell stories of. There is a thing that's not so much to do with um, vampire stories, but just to do with writing these stories that which, which are involved with the, the weave of history and popular culture, you know, politics and yeah. finance and all that media stuff. You need a bit of perspective before you can write one. I couldn't write an Anno Dracula story set this year. The, the latest novel is set, uh, it's Anno Dracula 1999, Daikaiju, which is set on the eve of the millennium. And so that I had 20 years of perspective on that era. It's going to take a while before you get perspective on what's going on now. And I don't know if, I, if I'll even be around to write, you know, Anno Dracula 2020. Or if I would want to. I mean, it's like, there are, I, I haven't written a World War II story because it seemed too obvious. And, and I'd written a World War I story, so I'd already had lots of battles and tanks and, and soldiers and stuff. So there are other bits and pieces that I've stayed away from. But who knows, I mean, maybe one day I'll... I'll wake up and have, an, have a World War II idea or would want to pick on some other moment. In, in, and I suppose the series has been, a, it's about the 
era from the 1890s onward. And it's something that's actually really exciting about Stoker's novel is that it's not the last gothic novel. It's the first techno-thriller. It's the first contemporary horror novel in the sense that Stephen King writes them, in that it takes this ancient evil myth and brings it to what was then the technological and cultural centre of the world, London. And I think that that means Dracula can cast the shadow forward. So many things that happened in the 1880s and 1890s were the beginnings of things that we're still living with, stuff like the culture of celebrity. Yeah. Um, or mass advertising. The, I mean, the, the rise of popular culture as, a, as a, a force displacing classical culture, which had been the dominant mode of discourse for, uh, for centuries among the, the educated, and even actually among the uneducated, the influence of the Bible and Shakespeare and, and Greek myths or whatever, it seems to be all pervasive. But from the 1890s on, suddenly there were these mass-produced fantasies, things like the Sherlock Holmes stories or Peter Pan or The Wizard of Oz, big figures, Jekyll and Hyde, Ryder Haggard, even some of the heavyweights, Henry James and, and Joseph Conrad. They were all grappling with what was going on then and pointing out things that it turns out are with us still. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an academic, but at university I spent a lot of time studying the late 19th century, uh, late 19th century literature. I'm named after a late 19th century novel. For me, it, it, it's a complete, <laughs> yeah, uh, my culture is so embedded in that. And I have, I, I admit I picked Dracula rather than um, <laughs> <laughs> something heavier. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I've, I've Recently, in, in the recent Anno Dracula novels, been doing some stuff with Henry James's characters. And Henry James, like Joseph Conrad, is somebody I've come to rather to appreciate rather later than, uh, than my tutors would have liked. Like Charlene, Kim takes only some of the rules from Stoker's work. Stoker, I think it's said that Dracula's afraid of the crucifix, which is not the same thing as a cross. The crucifix has the image of Christ crucified on it. So that limits it a bit. Yeah, yeah you can't just you know, tape together a couple of lolly sticks and wave it at Dracula. Yeah, you actually need uh, the, the, the proper thing from your... But then again, I mean, yeah, crucifixes aren't exactly hard to come by. <laughs> and and in, in a sort of surrealist way, it's, um, yeah... Would Dracula be be afraid of a picture of a crucifix? You can find out more about Kim Newman's series of Anno Dracula books on johnnyalucard.com. But now for our final look at different takes on Dracula in literature, we're coming back where it all started, Dublin. My name is Una Woods and I'm a children's writer and illustrator. My first book, Have You Seen the Dublin Vampire, has just been published by the O'Brien Press. How does it feel? It's so exciting because I've always wanted to do my own picture book. So just to finally see it published and in shops, it's just such a brilliant feeling. Una started her career as an animator. And I moved to London in 
1999 and I started doing freelance illustration and I've worked mainly, the projects I work on are mainly for young children, a lot of educational projects, stuff for online and other people's books, but I've always wanted to do my own picture book. So in September 2018, O'Brien Press ran a perfect picture event for Culture Night. So you had an opportunity to go and pick your idea for a story for if you got 10 minutes. Yeah, I was really, really nervous because I'd never been to a publisher before, so I didn't really know what to expect. I hadn't got a full story, but I had kind of an idea and I had loads of sketches, but I went along anyway. <laughs> and I met one of their designers there and she was just so nice and friendly and it was just a lovely experience. She loved vampires as well, so that's well, it's kind of a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Una grew up in Clontarf, close to Merino Crescent. So that was like the birthplace of Bram Stoker. So I was always really fascinated and curious about the most famous vampire in the world. Dracula was created really close to where I lived. And I just loved the idea that he could still be living nearby and that like nobody would even notice that he was there and he was just going about his business just like everybody else. So Una decided to tell that story in her book, Have You Seen the Dublin Vampire? And it's the story of the vampire's journey through Dublin at night. So he wakes up from his creepy old tree in Marina Crescent and he hops on the ghost bus and he heads into town and he crosses the Liffey and he visits places like Trinity College and he goes to Bewley's for tea. And the whole thing behind the story is that everybody around him is so busy to notice that he's there. So he just goes about his business every night and nobody notices him because they're on their phones or they're rushing to get to the next place. And it's really like if you actually open your eyes and you look around, there's all things that you amazing things around you that you get to see but there's a child in the story who notices it so (laughs) have you seen the dublin vampire by una woods is out now so there's no shortage of books stepping up to dracula's plate but will that always be the case will dracula be an inspiration for centuries to come i hope so vampires are so useful In so many ways. They're a good symbol. They're a good action figure. They're a good stroke of coldness in the book. I think it'll be cyclical like it always has been. Yeah, I think it's reached a point where um, it would would be very hard to stop. I I don't know. I mean, some franchises do die. Um, Dracula, I think, is... It's kind of hard. I mean, I was talking about this in a, in a meeting on, on another project this week. The, the, uh, Gone with the Wind, for many years, was the absolute archetype of a great Hollywood film. It was the film that people cited when they were talking about what the movies meant. It was the highest grossing movie of all time for the longest spell. I think Sound of Music. Right? So it was the highest grossing film for 35 years and easily adjusted for inflation among the top 10 to this day. And yet 
a couple of years ago, it became a kind of pariah work. People started to look at it and they just couldn't ignore the fact that the message was that the, the, you know, the Confederates were good guys and slavery wasn't that bad. And now it's become a film that is almost indefensible from being something that was everywhere, that was on everybody's top 10 lists. It's something that in a couple of years will become very hard to see. And if that can happen to a work that seems absolutely firmly embedded as central to popular culture, who knows? I think Dracula escapes that because it's too, it, it exists in too many different forms. There are too many uh, you know, variants from Nosferatu to the monsters to stamp it all out. Whereas Gone with the Wind was just what, it was a book and a film and that was it. But it was still a titanic presence. Who knows what can come and go next? Well, without Dracula, where would we all be? If not for Dracula, I don't think any of this would have happened, truthfully. Hear, hear. Well, that brings us to the end of our series of Dracula through the lens of pop culture. But I have a feeling, like the Count himself, we may be around for some time to come. I've been Liam Garrity, and you've been listening to Bram Stoker Festival's Fang.